The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Um, By the time you actually listen to this segment, a few of my colleagues and I will actually be at the National Association for College Admission Counseling which is NACAC for short. We're going to be at that annual conference uh, attending sessions, getting the latest on what's going on in the world of college admissions and bringing all that good information back to you in future shows. So I'm not technically live today, but I'm excited to tell you uh, and share everything that I learned while I'm there. Um, Earlier this summer, we actually ran a Facebook contest and we asked our followers and our listeners to submit their big college admission and finance questions. We had three big winners, Mary Madera and Holly Belmore Nee each won $50 Amazon gift cards. Uh, and Laura Augustin, and I apologize, Laura, if it's, August, if it's not Augustin, but in fact Augustine, but I think it's Augustin. Uh, anyway, she won the grand prize, and that's a backpack, Beats by Dre earbuds, a water bottle, and a 30-minute consult with an admissions or finance expert. So congrats to Laura and to all our winners. Thank you so much to everybody who submitted questions uh, on our Facebook page for this contest, uh, because today's show is all about those questions. Um, we're going to do our best to answer them all on air. Uh, in some cases, although not necessarily all, with a little bit more detail than we were able to provide on Facebook. Uh, and here to help me with all of that is my colleague and former St. Olaf's Dean of Financial Aid, Kathy Ruby. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. All right, we have a lot to go through today. I'm not sure we're going to get to everything, but we're going to do our very best. So why don't we get started? Um, And just for our listeners' sake, we have the list of questions in front of us, and Kathy's going to throw me the admissions questions, and I'm (laughs) going to throw her the finance questions, and um, we're going to make it really simple that way. All right. So shall we get started with the first one? Let's do it. All right, so this comes from Anne Cameron Dillon, and she's asking, for the common application, when putting in GPA, they state to put in the weighted, they state to put in weighted GPA if your school weights uh, their GPA, but do you put in the GPA for all courses or just core courses? Sure, really good question, and I think the bottom line answer on this one is, We generally advise to leave this blank. The fact is that colleges often have their own different ways of calculating a GPA. So at some schools, they're only going to do the core courses. At some schools, they're going to consider all courses. Some schools are going to unweight weighted grades and reweight them using their own system. Some schools are going to unweight the grades, period. They're not going to weight them for their GPA calculation, but they are going to assign a numerical ranking 
to the quality of the curriculum. So was it most rigorous available, very rigorous, um, average, less than average, that kind of thing. And all of this to say that there's so many different ways of doing this GPA calculation. And it's almost impossible to know how the different <laughs> schools that your child is going to be applying to is going to do it. So leave it blank. It's actually an optional part of the Common App. Um, and that's one of the reasons why. So at some schools, they're actually going to, most schools will ask you to submit a copy of your transcript along with your application. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to, you know, they're going to figure out what that GPA is using their own methods. At other schools, they will ask you um, to perhaps share the courses and the breakdown of courses, but those aren't common app schools. So the UC system, for example, they mm -hmm. ask you to input all the courses that you've taken and the grades that you've earned, and then they do their own calculations on their end. But in terms of the common app, our advice is I would just leave that section blank, make sure that the school is sending in a copy of your transcript, and you'll be all set. Great. That's easy. Yes. Okay, well now I have actually two questions that are pretty similar, so I'm going to ask them both at the same time and have you answer. So this is from Holly Bellamore Nay. My daughter has chosen to work to gain valuable experience related to her, her expected major and to save for college, which means she's had less time for extracurricular activities at school. What's the best way for her to explain that decision in her application, especially if she would prefer to write her essay about something else? And then the second question that's kind of related to that is, my daughter has a job on weekends, and this is from Anna Rada George. My daughter has a job on weekends that takes, takes up most of her free time trying to save up for college. With the push to have volunteering on resumes and college applications, is it to her disadvantage to have a smaller amount of volunteer hours listed than many of her peers? She works for a dog-sitting training kennel service, which is her area of interest and passion. Got it. So these are great questions, and both of them allow me to address what is a common myth, um, well, a couple of common myths. Uh, the first myth is this idea that somehow work is not an extracurricular activity. An extracurricular activity is anything that a student is doing outside of classroom work. So that could be uh, playing for the band. That could be playing a sport. It could be writing for the school newspaper. It could be working at a supermarket after school. It could be volunteering at a food pantry um, after school. It could be doing gymnastics at a club um, that is completely unaffiliated with the school. It really is anything quantifiable that a student is doing outside of the classroom. I stress the quantifiable because going home after school and reading while <laughs> awesome and something that I loved to do when I was in, uh, in school, and quite frankly, I love doing that now, um, it's not, you can't, you can write that on your college application, but it's hard for the college to really understand. I mean, you really could just be going home and sleeping every day so far as they can <laughs> really, um, you know, sort of effectively assess the, the amount of commitment there. So, you know, if you love to read after school, start a book club so that you can list hours per week and weeks per year, right? So in both yeah. of these cases, um, these jobs are great. The students are doing things that are getting them really great experience in the areas that they're interested in, um, potentially in pursuing as careers, maybe pursuing as academic majors. Um, 
in fact, these are, in my opinion, some of the best things that students can do with their time um, because it's not just, well, I joined this club because I think it's going to look good on my college application. It's I have this interest and I'm pursuing this interest, um, whatever that looks like, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. um, no need to explain uh, why the student doesn't have extra correct, more extracurricular activities. Um, the job is an extracurricular activity. It should go at the very top of the list and make sure that your um, daughter is clear on the number of hours per week and weeks per year. So that's mm-hmm. that one. All right. And then that's the first myth, hopefully gotten rid of and spread the word. The second is this idea that um, colleges care about community service more than other activities. So we, um, we wrote a blog, actually my colleague, and I think it was Ian Fisher who answered this on the Facebook page, wrote this blog, and the, the title was called Colleges Don't Care About Community Service. Now, we'll both admit that was a little bit of clickbait to get people kind of talking and clicking and reading, but the reality is that in a committee room, never once in my entire admissions career did the committee chair ask me, well, this student is incredibly accomplished, has done some really interesting things, wrote a great essay, has great letters of recommendation, but what's up with the lack of community service? I see (laughs) nothing here, right? Never once. And as uh, committee chair, I never asked somebody that either. Um, The reason for that is because community service is something that students can do, but they could also work. They could also play a sport. There are a lot of things that students can do. And the idea that community service is somehow greater than or Mm -hmm. conspicuous in its absence is really um, a myth. Now, is it true that colleges like to see students who are engaged in their communities and who care for others and who would be great roommates and people to have in the class? Absolutely. But the idea that somehow a specific number of hours of random community service activities will equate more to that than any number of interesting things that a student could do is false. So be a great member of the community, um, get involved and use your talents for good, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to go down to the soup kitchen every Saturday uh, to fulfill a prescribed number of hours. Unless, of course, your high school requires it, and that's another conversation. <laughs> and, oh, yes, don't forget to save for college. That's what I liked about those two questions. Those kids were saving money. That's great. Exactly. And you know what? That is probably going to be the most useful to them of everything uh, at the end of the day. Um, And that's a great segue to uh, our first finance question of the day. And this one comes from Christine Kopp. And Christine says, with the FAFSA staring us in the face, which she's right it is, right? This year it's due in October. (laughs) My question is, how to best represent our family financial situation if the prior prior year income is no longer accurate due to job slash income changes that have happened this year? Okay, well, that is that is a great question and one that uh, many families, I think, and many schools are wrestling with. So um, we have moved to prior, prior year for the 17-18 school year. So what does that mean? It means that the FAFSA is available a few months earlier. It's available October 1st instead of January 1st. Um, and the government is starting to ask for income from two years prior instead of the most recent calendar year of income. So that's actually a great thing because it means when you're filling out the form, you'll be able to just pull your data right from the IRS. It's going to be much simpler. You don't have to deal with any estimates. But um, and, and so for seniors, this year's seniors, they're going to be providing 2015 income. 
But the problem is that it's quite a bit of time has passed since 2015, right? So if something has changed in your family's situation, a job change, job loss, income change, whatever it might be, um, absolutely, you should reach out to the colleges to let them know this. And the, the tricky thing is, at this stage of the game, you might have to write to five or six or seven different financial aid offices, because you do have to write directly to the financial aid offices to explain what's happening, um, let them know what your 2016 income is and that it's lower than 2015, let them know the reasons, and it's best when those reasons are extenuating and out of your control. Um, and then each college will review that information Uh, they'll use something called their professional judgment, and they'll decide whether or not they're going to make an adjustment to to the data in your application based on maybe using 2016 income instead of 2015. So, um, yes, this is going to happen to quite a few families, although statistically you'd think it's no more than before. We're still dealing Mm -hmm. with one calendar year, but... um, but it is, I think, a reason for concern for some families. So make sure you do reach out to the colleges. They're expecting it. They've been told that they can make adjustments um, if, if it makes a difference. And sometimes it doesn't make a difference, but definitely reach out to them. Yeah, I think that's right. Highlights a larger issue, right? Always, you can always reach out. You can always ask this question. Right. You can always share additional information. Um, right. That actually brings me to the next question, which um, feels similarly kind of aligned to the one we you just answered. And this comes from Tina Sims, who asks: Is there a way to explain that our 2015 taxes reflect overtime that my husband worked fighting wildfires? This overtime is never a guarantee. So okay. similar. So yeah, it's a very similar question, but I'm going to add something here. So when it's when it's something like overtime, um, and you've had an unusually high year, but it sounds to me like he normally does have some overtime. It's just never guaranteed, and never guaranteed for anyone, right? But if this year's income was unusually high, when you're making your case for something like this, as opposed to a job loss where you're going to say, you know, next year's income is so much lower. In this kind of a case, the argument you're really trying to make is this year's income is much higher than what our income normally is. So in that case, it might not be a bad idea to give them copies of, you know, the front page of the last five years of your tax returns that show lower income. Um, And because of the timing of when you're applying, you might have a good sense of what 2016 income will look like. So try to really make the case for the fact that this one year is out of the ordinary um, because of the overtime and give them more to work with, essentially is what you're trying to do and make your case for how this is an unusually high year. Got it. And so, again, right, same thing, that more information is sometimes better in these types of uh, yeah. situations. and document so. it as much as you can. Don't just tell them what your income was, but go ahead and provide them with copies of those first two pages so they don't have to ask for it. Right. Got it. Okay. All so, right. Hit me. What do you got? All right. What do I have? Now i got to get back to that. All right. So our next question comes from Kathy Frizzalone. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that name. My daughter is starting a dual credit program this year. From an admissions perspective, all other things being equal, would her chances of acceptance to a given school be better coming in as a freshman with almost enough credits for her associates, or should she go for an additional semester after high school and apply as a junior transfer? Also a really great question. I mean, all these questions show 
the challenge in this work, which is just, and in going through this process, how much nuance there can really be in all of these um, these different answers. So you mentioned a, a given school, and I think that's a really good thing to start with, a given school, because every given school is probably going to have a different take on this. Well, not maybe not quite like that. But what I will say is that dual credit programs are awesome in theory. So the idea with the dual credit program is that you take class often at the high school that is um, run by a college, or sometimes you leave the college, the high school campus and you go to the college campus and you take the class there. And the idea is that you are uh, – killing two birds with one stone by doing that. You are knocking off your high school credits so that you can graduate from high school and you are also earning college credits so that you can graduate from college early and in some cases at a much, much cheaper rate. All of that is awesome. I'm a, uh, a fan for that reason, um, getting through things earlier, more quickly, and for cheaper. I mean, it's tough not to get behind that <laughs> general idea, yeah, right? exactly. The challenges come in in that there are... It kind of depends on what the goal is. So if the goal is maybe you want to earn your degree from that participating institution, then great. Um, and in that case, maybe it does make more sense to, um, you know, usually if you're going to earn it from that given institution, then you're probably just going to stay enrolled and you're very seamlessly going to transition transition from high school to college. And so this question of would it be better to do an additional semester and then apply mm-hmm. probably doesn't. Um, apply in that situation if you stay in the participating institution. So now you're looking at applying to schools outside of that participating institution, and here's where it gets tricky. Many colleges are not going to accept classes taken for dual credit. Um, And maybe I shouldn't say many. Maybe I should say some colleges, and that's probably a more accurate thing. And, And generally speaking, the more selective the college, the less likely there are going to be taking um, dual credit classes for credit. Uh, and, and again, I'm really, I am really talking about like, so if you look at the most selective schools in the country, places like Penn, where I worked, um, uh, MIT, University of Chicago, uh, Georgetown, uh, Harvard, Bowdoin, in some cases, the UC system, I'm really trying to throw out all the places where our people have worked. Uh, what you're going to find is that they really do have rules about what is acceptable for college credit, and lots of stuff is not going to be acceptable for college credit, including courses that were taken for high school credit. So those schools really don't want you double dipping. Um, mm-hmm. So the first thing you have to do is really think about where does your daughter want to go to school? and uh, maybe look into what their policies are on awarding college credit for courses taken before you arrive there. Um, The other thing is that uh, at some schools, it is easier to enter as a freshman coming Mm -hmm. in with um, maybe slightly advanced standing or the ability to place out of some credits than it is to get in as a transfer. So there are schools where there have many more spots available, well, Basically, every school has way more spots available for entering freshmen than they do for transfer applicants. But mm-hmm. there are some schools where it isn't super difficult to transfer in, and then there are schools where it becomes more difficult. Um, there are schools, some of the Ivies would be a, a couple of examples where 
Some years they have zero spots available for transfer applicants. Yeah. Um, now, again, those we're talking about a very, very small number of schools. So even if you, uh, you know, sort of eliminate them from the conversation, it is true that at some schools it is harder to transfer in than it is to get in as an entering freshman. And so that's something else to consider. So I would say you want to be looking at what their transfer policies are, seeing if you can find data about the number of transfer applicants that a, that a school accepts versus freshman applicants. Um, some programs where maybe you might have to start as a freshman or you're not going to be able to enter that program at all um, is another thing to look at. So uh, in theory, dual credit, awesome. In practice, lots and lots of potential landmines that you want to really try to suss out before you either make the decision to enroll in them or make the decision to actually get that associate's degree and now you're going to be applying as a transfer, which may mm -hmm. not always be the best choice. Right, exactly. So, a little convoluted, but... Yeah, all right. no, not convoluted at all. It makes sense. Okay, good, good. That means I... And I, and I can say, even as, uh, I mean, at St. Olaf, we were not a highly selective, but we were very selective, and it was harder. We had fewer spots for transfers than first years, for sure. Yeah, so and there you go. It depended on the year, but certainly, it, sometimes it was harder as a transfer. And, it, and, you know, it does depend on the year. It's going to change. Uh, every year, these colleges get different applicant pools. They have different students who decide to either persist and stay, or maybe they want to take a year off, or they're going to go abroad. And so you kind of, the number of beds you have to fill every year is fairly fluid. Um, well, and I think it's okay to ask the college, too. I mean, right, yeah. outright, ask the admissions, ask the transfer counselor. Should I apply yes. as a first year or as a transfer? Exactly. And if you are listening and you are having to make a decision about enrolling your child, or if you're a student thinking about enrolling in a dual credit program, these are good questions to ask now. You may not know where you want to go to college, but, you know, I would talk to the guidance counselor. I know that this is, you know, sort of a great program you guys run, but if our goals are X, is this going to really help us achieve our goals? And have you seen students with our goals um, take the dual credit program and be successful. So you want to look for evidence, not just, oh, it's a great program, do it, but also, yes, and I can tell you of five students who wanted to do what you did and who took the school dual credit program and were successful, right? You mm -hmm. want evidence to back it up. Okay. Yep. okay. Um, next finance question. Um, this comes from Kim Bissonette Bergeron, who asks, uh, this seem, may seem like a dumb question, but I have to wonder, my son started his first year of college this week. We took out a loan for his tuition. My question is, though he has started school, is there any way to still get financial aid and scholarships for this year to knock down what we owe? I look forward to your response. Thank you. All right. Okay. Well, um, so if your child is already enrolled and you've taken out a loan, um, my guess is if you took out a parent loan and if your student took out the federal direct loan, that means you actually did apply for need-based financial aid by completing the FAFSA form. So you, you probably did apply for need-based aid. Um, you might want to check, though, with the financial aid office to re-review you know, the information that you submitted. Let them know, as we discussed earlier, if there's anything that's different in your situation or something that they didn't capture. Um, you also might want to go back and make sure that your student was considered for any merit scholarships that might have been offered. Sometimes there are deadlines by which they have to apply for admission to be considered. Um, and, and ask the financial aid office, you know, was, was he fully considered for everything he could be considered for? Um, 
But my guess is you're probably going to be looking at scholarships for next year. And to search for those, um, certainly reach out to the financial aid office. Um, You may also want to have your son start looking for private scholarships, so outside scholarships uh, that are not from the college. Sometimes the college's website will have resources for how to search for those. Um, And and, uh, and and again, reaching out to the financial aid office to see if there are any scholarships from the institution that he be, can be considered for. Um, if you haven't already, you may also want to check out whether the college has a monthly payment plan um, because that can sometimes make the payments a bit easier um, rather than just borrowing the whole thing through a loan. You may be able to, you may discover, especially now that he's gone and in college, you may realize that you've got a little more discretionary income than you thought. Um, and so maybe you can make some payments monthly uh, and not have to borrow quite as much and maybe find some kind of balance there. So right. my guess is you've missed the deadlines, but but give it a try. Reach out to the financial aid office as quickly as possible and see if there's anything else to do. Perfect. And actually, on that note, um, I think we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to try and get through the remaining questions that we have. We have a lot of admissions and a couple of really good finance questions. Um, So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Before the break, we were answering listener questions that came in through our Facebook contest. And if you are wondering... Where was I when this contest was going on? Well, follow us on Facebook, and then you'll be in the loop next time, because it won't be the last time we do this. All right, uh, Kathy, we are ready for more admissions questions, so follow All away. right. Our first one is from Julie Bailey. Do you have any general recommendations for a student writing their personal statement for grad school applications that would differ from your discussions regarding the undergrad essay? 
Sure. So I will say from the outset that our area of expertise is primarily on the undergrad side, but we do work with grad students sometimes on their writing. Uh, and I do think it's a quite a big difference because when a student is applying for an undergraduate program, they're writing an essay that is generally something the goal is to share something important about yourself. And it doesn't have to be any one specific thing, but it's a story that you're telling that's going to illustrate something that you think is important for the admissions office to know. When you're applying for graduate school, you are, you should be very focused on a particular goal. Um, you have a particular academic track and path in mind. And really what they're looking for there is less of a personal story and more of a statement of purpose. And there is a big difference between those things. They want to understand why you're interested in a specific pursuing the specific path. Um, sometimes they want to know, or often they want to know what you've already done in this area. They want to know what you hope to achieve in this area. So it is much, it doesn't have to be written extremely dryly, excuse me, <clears throat> but it does have to, you know, because it's always nice to read something that's a little more engaging, but it does have to be much more a statement of purpose uh, and really showcase that element of the application than it is about any kind of story that you want to tell uh, about yourself. So that, you know, I, I think the person who answered this, I think, again, it was Ian um, may have said this, but likened it more to a cover letter for a job than uh, a personal statement of some kind. And I think that's fairly um, accurate, mm -hmm. that you're really trying to show um, why this is a good next step for you. So that's that. All right. Great. All right. The next question, Amy Carrido, is it too early for a ninth grader to take the PSAT? Should we wait until 10th grade? So I think that in general, the answer is, I don't know that it's too early, but I don't know that most ninth graders really need to take the PSAT. Uh, I'm of the school, though, that says it's why not get more exposure to standardized testing than less, especially when the stakes are zero. Um, there mm -hmm. is literally no reason not to take the PSAT because... Um, no colleges are going to see the scores. They will never become part of any sort of record when it comes time to apply to college. They don't impact anything in high school. The only impact truly is potentially on the student. So mm -hmm. the one thing about the PSAT is that many students who would take it as a ninth grader would not have had a lot of the math that's going to be on the test. And in fact, some may not have had any of the math that's going to be on the test, in which case that can be semi-demoralizing or extremely demoralizing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do think it's partially based on what level of math your child has achieved. You know, so if, you're, if your student is taking Algebra 1 as a freshman, they might want to wait and just take it for the first time as a uh, sophomore. If your child is, a, is taking ge ge geometry, sheesh, I kept wanting to say geology. Um, <laughs> geometry in freshman, so yes. In freshman year, they, you know, he or she might have had enough math to do okay. If you have a kid who's sort of okay with the idea, like, I'm just going to go in and see what this is all about, then I don't think it really matters what math they have. They, they have the right attitude. But if you have a child that gets really wound up about testing in general and will be very, very distraught if the scores come back and they're really not very good, which I would – by the way, totally anticipate they wouldn't be that good. It's not designed right. for a freshman. It's designed for a uh, junior. Um, those are all good reasons not to take the test. But if the goal, and really the goal of taking it as a sophomore, is just to get a little more practice, um, 
I, you know, for the right kid, I don't see why not, but I certainly don't think it's any kind of a requirement. And I would not prep for the test. And by that, I mean, I wouldn't spend money doing test prep for the mm-hmm. PSAT really ever. Um, and uh, I would just, you know, maybe you want to pick up a book and familiarize yourself as a student with what's going to be asked, but otherwise, uh, no studying required. You show up, you take it, you're done. Um, See how you do. All right. Exactly. Okay. Well, Al Wilson asks, what has been the college coach expert's observations regarding whether there's actually a legacy application advantage? And it sounds like this was in relation to an article that he might have posted. I think he did. I think he shared a link to an article. And so the the answer on Facebook was a little bit more detailed with regard to that article. But what I can say is that certainly legacy, you know, having a parent or a grandparent who attended the institution you're applying to, which would make you a legacy applicant, um, can absolutely be a tip factor. Uh, students don't get in because they are legacy applicants, but all other things being equal, sometimes that can be the thing that does get you in. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Does it exist? Of course it does. Some schools are very clear that they actually do not consider legacy as part of their application process. Uh, MIT and Caltech are two big ones that are out there with that information. They are looking for a specific type of student, and you are either that type of student or you're not. And if you're not, then it doesn't matter if your entire family went to MIT, they're not interested. Um, On the flip side of that, other schools are very um, open about what constitutes a legacy. At some schools, it is merely having a parent or a grandparent who graduated from the undergraduate institution at that school. At other schools like Penn, Penn considers anybody who graduated from a graduate or undergraduate program their children or their grandchildren are going to be considered legacy applicants. But what Penn is also very specific about is that if you want maximum consideration for legacy status, they want maximum consideration from you, and that means they want to see you apply in the early decision round. Mm. Um, Those are examples of schools who are very explicit about their legacy, you know, sort of what a tip factor is and how it works. Um, in as much as they can be explicit about it. I, lots of schools are less so. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, the impact of legacy, in my experience, becomes less and less every year as schools become more and more selective. The fact of the matter is that there was a time when being a legacy could have been a huge factor. Nowadays, it is a very minor factor. And the legacy applicant has to be just as good as the other applicants to really justify um, tipping them into the class. But um, it can be a nice extra, but it is not, you don't admit because someone graduated from there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, it's a conversation there with no real answer to it because you can't get behind the scenes and really look. But I can tell you from my experience behind the scenes that even with those students who applied, who were legacy applicants and applied in the early decision round, they still had to be pretty spectacular in their own right in order mm-hmm. to be admitted. So. Right. Okay. All right. I think, are we moving to finance now? Oh, you're right. We are moving to finance. Okay. Um, Mary Madeira asks, here is my question to enter the contest. Sorry, I probably didn't need to read that, but there you go. (laughs) What is the best way to open a 529 account for my student and not have it affect them on the FAFSA or a scholarship decision? Okay. 
Uh, that's a good question. Um, the first is the first thing, just to clarify, um, whatever you report on the FAFSA or whatever your finances are, that should not affect merit scholarship decisions. So generally speaking, whatever you do with your money, that's not going to affect a scholarship decision. Um, but if you are concerned about what you're reporting on the FAFSA form and you're trying to keep your EFC as low as possible, um, there is no way to open a 529 plan and not have it affect your your contribution figure. But the good news is that assets are treated much more uh, uh, carefully in the formula. There's much less expected of assets than income. So when the expected family contribution is calculated, uh, it looks at parent income, parent assets, student income, student assets. And it turns out the biggest driver of the formula is really parent income. And and parent assets, which is what a 529 plan is considered, um, those are only assessed at a rate of 4 to 6%. So you could have $100,000 in a 529 savings plan, and it would only increase your expected family contribution by four to $6,000, as opposed to your income, where they expect anywhere, depending on what your income is, um, you know, it can be up to a quarter of your income that they expect when we get into the higher ranges um, above, above the, you know, in the high 100s, low 200s. So formula much more dependent upon parent income than assets. So this is a long way of saying if you're thinking about opening a 529 plan or saving for your child, do it. <laughs> it's never too late. Do it. <laughs> Right. It's never a bad thing, and you are never no. penalized for saving exactly. um, for your child. All right. Awesome. All right. All back right. to admissions. Back to admissions. All right. So Irene Choi asks, perusing barons and college boards, college directories, which list college profiles, how do I convert old and new SAT scores to align to the SAT score ranges in these books? She's trying to categorize the college list into her no problem, just right, and challenging schools. Got it. So this is a little tricky to answer on here just because there was some good information provided on the answer on the Facebook um, page mm-hmm. um, about, but basically there is a college readiness section of the collegeboard.org um, where you're going to find SAT scores. Anyway, there's a link on the College Board site to convert old SAT to new SAT. So the first thing to do is probably go there and make the conversion using their um, information to do that. And then mm-hmm. you can take that old score that you now have um, and use it. It will be a more accurate way to compare it to the score averages that you are seeing um, on these uh, like college directories or on Barron's and things like that. Um, alternatively, you can also look up the redesigned SAT averages on, the, on College Board's Big Future website, which is at bigfuture.collegeboard.org. Um, and they have SAT and ACT scores tab, and they give you the estimated SAT averages based on the old SAT using both the 2400 scale, which is with writing, and the 1600 scale, uh, which is for colleges who didn't use the writing score. So basically, you just want to look for a link. Um, You could even Google converting uh, old new SAT scores to the old SAT score or vice versa, and it will generally come up with a uh, conversion chart for you. Okay, great. All right, so Mandy Powers Norrell asks, my son was very excited to apply to a particular college. He even reached out to the admissions department 
who was receptive, and they had a good dialogue. Recently, however, he read an online review of that college that was shockingly negative and cited several specifics. How should he go about asking the admissions department about that scathing review and the specific allegations in it? So this is a... a, a a little bit of a tricky one because, of course, we don't know the college that's being talked about. We don't know the review. We don't know who wrote the review. Um, so partially, I don't have as much information. And I would also guess um, that Mandy and her son don't have all the information in terms of, you know, was this someone, the person who wrote the review, someone who had an axe to grind? Um, I don't know where the review appeared. So I think that the answer on the Facebook page was a good one in that it's never a bad thing to ask colleges um, to have a conversation about things that perhaps concern you about a school. Um, you know, if there are things that are showing up repeatedly as issues on campus, I always encourage families to pick up newspapers when they're on campuses, look at what's being written about in the college newspaper. Um, look at what's being posted about around campus. Maybe often these days the newspaper will have a website where you can kind of see the hot button issues on campus. And if those hot button issues are also hot button issues for you, then I think it's really great to ask about that. Um, if, though, this is really just one person who's unhappy, then I really look at it more like a Yelp review. I, I have a love-hate relationship with Yelp. I think it's somewhat <laughs> useful for restaurants and hotels. I find it almost um, completely useless for anything else. And the reason for that is because um, generally the people who are the ones who go and write the reviews are often the people who have problems. Very few people who have a good experience take the time to write about it because they're busy with other things, whereas if you're unhappy, you're the person who's more likely to take the time and energy to write something. So what does that mean? Does it mean that everything in a Yelp review that's negative is false? Absolutely not. Of course not. But does it mean that there might be some added... Um, you know, stuff in there that someone who's just deeply unhappy about an experience in a way that may not really have anything to do with what you're going to get out of that institution. Yeah, it could certainly be that. So I do think you want to approach those types of one-off reviews with caution. If you see a lot of them, then you should certainly be concerned. And I think you should always feel comfortable addressing larger concerns with a college. If you're going to spend a lot of money and a lot of time there, you need to feel like really good about the fact that this is a good place for you. Um, but in the same way that I encourage students not to let one tour guide dictate how much they <laughs> love or hate a school, I don't think you should allow an online review written by probably an anonymous person dictate where you will or will not spend the next four years of your life without doing some additional investigating yourself. Okay, our next question comes from Barbara Seda Agamians. <laughs> How do you make a pretty good student with special needs stand out on a common application? So this is a little bit of a tricky one because I think, you know, standing out on the Common App is the same for everyone, whether your student has special needs or not. Um, and I think a lot of what we do on this show, we talk a lot about the things that students need to pay attention to so that their application will be as strong as it possibly can be. Um, and the other thing, when you get a very, very general question like this is, what stands out at one school's environment will not necessarily stand out in another school. So it's almost impossible to say if you do X, you will always stand out no matter where you're applying, right? It really depends mm -hmm. on where you're applying yeah. and 
all of that stuff. So instead, what I'll really more focus on, and the things is, you know, a great application is built from starting early. Um, it's making good choices in the classroom and doing well in those classes. It's getting good test scores. It's writing good essays. It's getting um, people who know and like you to write your letters of recommendation. It's completing everything in a timely way, getting everything in when you're supposed to. Um, there are all those different things go into having a good application. The question of special needs is a bit trickier and bigger, and we have talked about it on the show before, um, whether to disclose, whether not to disclose, how to disclose, uh, you know, um, good schools for students who have special needs. Uh, so I think what we're going to look to do is a, a segment in the future where we talk about many of these issues again, um, because mm-hmm. you can never kind of talk about it too much. So I guess I would say uh, to... Uh, keep an eye out on future shows because we will be tackling this in in another show. Great. Okay. So with uh, that, I think we're going to um, yeah one last another finance point. question. I think one last yep. finance question. Uh, okay, Laura Colson Augustine says, or Augustine, I don't know which one I'm saying now. I think I just found a third pronunciation. Sorry, Laura. Um, (laughs) Since the Common App and CSS profile will be available on October 1st, is it okay to submit them as soon as possible to the schools, even if we have not applied yet, i.e. early action deadline might be November 1st? Uh, Will the colleges just start a file for the student? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So um, this is a new year for everyone with the forms being available October 1st. So colleges are really going to be watching, watching their numbers, watching how people do this. But from my perspective, there's no reason not to go ahead and fill out the forms now. It's asking for 2015 income. You've got all that information. Um, and it's a financial aid form. So there's, you know, it's not rocket science. You just answer the questions that they're asking for. Um, and so what happens is, and trust me, I worked in a financial aid office for 27 years. I will tell you, if you haven't applied for admission to that college yet, um, the financial aid office will pretty much ignore the information until you do. Um, they have enough to keep them busy, and then once you do apply, um, information from the admissions office will match up with with the information in the financial aid office, and then um, they'll start processing it as they do in their timeline. So we're waiting to see how all of these, uh, how the earlier completion time will affect when awards actually go out, um, because colleges don't send a financial aid award until you've actually been admitted to the school. So we'll see how that timeline plays out. But I guess the other important takeaway from this is that, yes, you do apply for financial aid, even if you don't know yet if you've been admitted. Um, also, not a bad idea to, to apply in October because um, if, an, if a university, and this tends to be larger universities, if they award anything on a first-come, first-serve basis, you want to try to be first if you can. Other schools have priority deadlines where they just, as long as you apply by that deadline, you're okay. Um, but some schools have first come, first serve, so not a bad idea. Get it done in October, be done with it, um, and then your child can apply for admission when they're ready. Right, and you never have to have that moment of, we forgot to submit the financial aid forms, right? (laughs) Exactly. When you're thinking about it. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you, Kathy. All right, and so now we've got... 
Kathy Frizzalone again. My daughter is thinking of planning a gap year. One of the colleges she's interested in does not allow her to defer enrollment for a year after initial acceptance. So the question is, should she apply to that school as a senior in high school or just wait a year? She's concerned that they might hold it against her either way, either hold it against her that she was accepted and declined senior year and that it may impact her chances of being accepted again the next year, or if she doesn't apply senior year, will they hold that against her? (laughs) So thank you, she says. Uh, So I think the the short answer here is if she's absolutely positively going to take a gap year after her senior year and she's already decided that and it has nothing to do with where she gets accepted to college, I would not apply to any school whose policy clearly states we do not defer enrollment. Um, There is nothing to be gained by applying, getting in, and turning them down so that you could take a gap year. Um, You already knew you were going to do that. And the colleges aren't going to hold it against you if you decide not to apply until after your senior year, i.e. in the middle of your gap year, um, Mm -hmm. because they've clearly stated, don't don't apply and then you can't (laughs) defer. So I see no harm in waiting um, for that school in particular uh, to apply to while she's doing her gap year. And I see no reason why she would apply knowing she's going to do a gap year and then knowing she'll have to turn them down. Okay. All right. Delia Quinn Troy asks, what weight, if any, do colleges give to AP exam scores from courses taken in the sophomore and junior years? Um, So uh, the answer on the Facebook page was really that colleges award the same weight to any AP score regardless of when the class was taken, which is totally accurate. Um, And I guess I would say that at some schools, you know, the AP scores are, I guess at all schools, if you take an AP and you take the test and you do well, that's something they're going to look at and consider. Um, I don't know of any school where that's a part of their numerical evaluation, sort of part of their numerical calculation, um, but schools certainly um, are going to look at those scores if you choose to uh, include them on the application. One note is that generally speaking, unless the school specifically requires it, you don't officially send those scores until after you've been accepted and decided to attend, and only then if you are trying to get credit for them. Uh, otherwise, there's a place on the application where you can just give the score, and you don't have to send an mm-hmm. official report. Okay. All right. So Julie Bailey asks, and this is our second to last question. My daughter graduated from UW-Madison in May. My son is a high school junior who would also like to go to UW. However, it's probably a reach school for him. We're out of state. Do schools give any special consideration to an applicant whose sibling is an alum? Um, So in my experience, siblings generally, well, siblings at many schools do not count as um, your, it doesn't make your child a legacy applicant because their brother or sister went there. There are certainly schools where they may consider that, um, so I'm not going to make a blanket statement and say they all don't or they all do, but I know at Penn, having a sibling there was not didn't give you legacy status, um, and I know of other schools where that's similarly the case. So um, unfortunately, the answer here is really just you need to contact the school to find out if they consider sibling a legacy, and if so, it may pay, play a very limited role in the process process as we discussed a little bit earlier. Um, So that's the last of our admissions questions. We have literally one minute um, (laughs) before I have to do some of my wrap-up housekeeping stuff. So very quickly, Jen Brown Wiener actually sent in a two-part question. So I am going to um, 
have you, Kathy, maybe quickly answer the first part, which is what is the best way to make sure you find every available scholarship? Okay, and very quickly, the best way to make sure you find every available scholarship, most scholarship money comes from the colleges themselves. There are outside organizations that give money, but most money comes from the colleges themselves. So the best way to make sure that you get the best scholarships is to make sure you have a well-shaped college list. And certainly you've heard this before on our show, especially in the Schools In application workshop. They've been talking about putting together the college list. Make sure your child has plenty of no-problem schools on their list because those are the schools that want to entice your student to enroll the most, and they're the ones who are most likely to give your student money. Um, And then make sure you have a few just-right schools because they might, and then those challenging schools are less likely, the the least likely, if you're not qualifying for need-based aid, um, least likely to offer scholarships to your student. Awesome. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Great. Um, Just a few important notes before we wrap up the show. Uh, Next week, Sally's here. She's going to be hosting, and she has a very special guest, Catherine Etman from BU's Boston University School of Public Health, where is going to join. Um, They're going to talk about the public health major, what it is, what it it entails, um, what schools offer it, why students uh, should be interested in it, especially if they're interested in pre-med, and what a career in public health could look like. Um, Schools In is going to focus on filling out the FAFSA, which we've talked about quite a bit today, which will need to be done in October this year instead of February as in years past. Um, As always, please visit our archives. We have all kinds of great stuff floating around in there. Um, That's going to be very relevant to you, especially if you're going through the application process right now. Um, If you have questions like these listener questions, send them gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. It's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Um, follow us on Facebook, visit our blog, which is awesome, by the way, getting into co- get into college.com forward slash blog. We're on print Pinterest, LinkedIn. Um, we have our website, uh, and you can also sign up for free downloads of the show on iTunes. And if you would rate the show while you're there, we would love that. Um, and we are here every Thursday at 4 PM Eastern, 1 PM Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 